Okay, I'll be like Mishet Wan Rajim, Smiller Rahman Rahim. Okay, Rabbish Ashi Sadri, Wayasri Amri, Wahla Okutal Misani of Fakoli, Bismillahi, Walhamdulillahi, Wasilat, Wasalam, Allah Rasulullah, Sunnah Samabad. This is now post Israel Miraj. We're into roughly about 11th, 12th year of Muhammad Salam's prophethood. Muhammad Salam has received support from a group of people that he would never expected the support to come from. And we're talking about these were the youngsters that came from Medina. So these young tribe that came to do the pilgrimage, not knowing that they were going to meet, meet Muhammad Salam, they knew about Muhammad Salam because of the da'wah that he was spreading. So there are a few things that you should be clear about in the way that Allah SWT helps out in certain situations. Allah does not change any circumstances of the people unless they change what is within themselves and the things that they do. So what this means is we have to try our best effort in everything before we expect any help from Allah SWT. A lot of people have this notion that I expect Allah to do this, I expect Allah to give me this, etc, etc. Nothing changes without the first, the cause to happen. And as a result of the cause, then the results occur. So if you want something to happen, you have to make the move, right? That's always the case. In, in any test that occurs, you are expected to make that move. You want to get closer to Allah. Allah doesn't come seeking you. Allah expects you to make that move first because that's the whole point of this whole game. You have to make the first move. You've got to roll the dice. You've got to make the decision whether you go left or you go right. But behind the scenes, out of your control. So everything that you control is what you think and what you do. Everything that you do, the result of what you do is now in the hands of Allah. And the way that Allah can make those results happen is by having control of every part of the universe to make the moon, the stars, the atoms, the protons, everything align. I mean, take it from the most simple of things. When you want to, <clears throat> let's say, for example, the youngsters, if you're doing your exams, you have to just make the effort in revising, put the best effort that you can. You can't expect to do half an hour a week and then expect to get A plus in your A levels. This is not going to happen. Or even your degrees, yeah, to get a first. Allah says you have to put the best effort possible, right? That is the condition. If that condition is not met, then Allah does not meet on the other side. So you've got to put the best effort in. So those who put the best effort in, Allah says, now the results are in my hand. Now, the results are not determined. The value of the result, good or bad, is not determined by what you want. So if I put my best effort in, let's say, into my A-levels, and I wanted to do medicine, and I work really hard, and eventually I get the A, you know, and, and I don't get the A+, plus, okay? I don't get the grades. I don't get the grades to get into the university that I wanted to get into to become a doctor. Allah SWT didn't give that to me. I have seen on countless times in the past where people have said, I have put all my effort in, I did my salah, I did my du'as, etc. And yet Allah did not give me. Allah did not give me what I wanted. And they almost feel that A, they've been betrayed by God, or God hasn't fulfilled his criteria, hasn't fulfilled his part of the deal, na'udhu billah. And to the point that I have seen people lose their faith in Islam. And you've heard it most, you'll see on YouTube news reports, whatever, when they do interviews with certain Muslims who've gone through devastations in their life. 
They've gone through hardship. I lost my family members. I lost my, I lost my wealth. I lost this. I lost that. And Allah didn't come through for me. And as a result of that, they apostatize. They leave the religion of Islam because they fail to understand. So if you look from the other side of it, Allah SWT says that sometimes things occur because Allah knows best. Allah knows better which you are not aware of, which you do not know. There could be a case that you, if let's say for example, you did pass, you did get the A+, you did get to university, but by the time you got to your second year, you ran into the wrong kind of people. And those wrong kind of people ended up getting you onto drugs or they got you involved in something you should not got involved with. And all of a sudden your life went out of control and you ended up in the wrong path that maybe ended up even you getting imprisoned. So Allah is saying that path that you could have taken could have ended up in that direction. You had the vision to become the great GP, the great consultant of the world. But instead, you took that path and your path ended up in a very abrupt way. And Allah protected you from that and then replaced it with something else. So we as Muslims should always have this mentality. And this is the beautiful thing about this part of the seerah when Muhammad when he was giving dawah, he was going to all these tribes. When he wanted support to get protection from the Quraysh, and the Quraysh were a very powerful unison organization like America, Russia, Britain, etc. They had the control of all of Arabia. And he wanted something that could protect him so that he can carry his dawah. Not for his life, he knew the life was in the hands of Allah to protect him so he can carry that dawah. And naturally you would think that you would go to the most powerful, the strongest person that was available to give you that. And so we think that in very similar cases that when we want to better our career, keep close to those people that are successful. And in our eyes, those people that pray five times a day, those people who fast, who haven't got necessarily the best jobs, they're not the kind of people that are going to achieve our material success. So we look for those who are doing very well in business, those who are entrepreneurs, those who, are, who have got senior level positions in corporates, managing directors, executive directors, and we tend to gravitate towards them thinking that they are the ones that are going to give us the results. Because in this picture we are omitting Allah out of this and Allah has already minded none of these people have control over giving you what you want, only I do. I use them to execute my command. I execute these people to fulfill the requirements that I want fulfilled in this dunya. So Muhammad he just went equally to everyone. He didn't have this notion that you're going to give to me, you're going to give to you. He just went and done his job in the best effort, day and night, day and night, put his effort in. And little did Muhammad know that there was a tribe that was coming from Medina who was prepared for him, who knew about him, who came from a society that already were devastated because there was a huge 10-year war where both of their families, huge massive groups of tribes, were slaughtered. Ready for them, emotionally broken, looking for a saviour, looking for something, and then compounded with the Jews that lived in their community that kept on picking on them, bullying them, telling them there is coming a prophet who is going to side with us and destroy all of you pagans, all you idol worshippers. And little did they know that over the course of those 10 years, Allah had already prepared to converge them together. 
And little did Muhammad know that when he gave da'wah to these youngsters, he didn't know their backstory. They knew their backstory. He just saw four or six these youngsters gave them da'wah in the same manner as he gave it to the big tribes because he believed that everyone was equal in receiving those messages. And when he did that, little did he know that it was these people that were going to turn around and give him support out of all the big tribes. And so when these, these tribes came back and they, they went off four, six of these, then they brought another 12 back. And then on the third visit, on the second uh, pledge of Aqaba, 70 came. And before you know it, in three years, when Muhammad sent Musab bin Amir, he sent one of the Sahabi to go with them, to give them da'wah, not knowing whether, what was going to happen, not knowing what fruition was going to happen in terms of Islam. And little did you know, can you imagine, in the first 10 years of Muhammad's life, he only converted 80, 84 people. He even made a comment to Allah, you gave me prophethood, and yet I can only convert 84 people in 10 years of my prophethood. That's half my life was already gone. And Allah said to him that I gave you the power of the prophethood, the power to convey the message. When did I ever say that you have the power to change the hearts of the people? When did I ever say you have the power to give this guy a job? When did I ever say that you can make him a millionaire? I never give you that, that control. That control solely belongs to Allah SWT. Only with Allah. I gave you the power to spread the message and the protection to spread that message. So he sent Musab bin Amir, and can you believe in three years, Musab bin Amir nearly converted three quarters of Medina. He converted more people than Muhammad Sallam did. So it's got nothing to do with the individual. Khalid bin Walid won so many battles. He was given the name Saif Allah. But it got to a point that people started thinking, it's Khalid bin Walid. He's the champion. And actually, I, when I talk to brothers now, even now they're like, Khalid bin Walid was the man. Khalid bin Walid, Khalid bin Walid was a Sahabi. He was a Sahabi. But please do not think it was because of him that the victories of the battles came. That he did not win those battles merely because of his, his own abilities. He won them by the will of Allah SWT. And this is what the Sahabi, they moved him out of position because Umri Khattab says, I don't want people to think that you are the one that are winning the war. The wars and the victory comes from Allah SWT. So you see, it's got nothing to do with the individual. This is from whose hands Allah wishes where the blessings will come from. So when they came and the community were ready, then it was now prepared. Muhammad received in his dream. He said, I was shown in my dream a land, a swampy land, which had palm groves. And in my mind, I thought it was Al-Yamama or a town that was near Yemen. And little did I think that it was going to be the town of Yathrib, Medina, where I gave dawah to these youngsters. So this will be the place of my emigration, for me to migrate out of Makkah and to go here. The situation in, in Makkah was so bad now that it's probably the worst, okay, the worst point now for the Muslims to be in Makkah. So the attack just increased tenfold, fiftienfold, twentyfold. And there was no support for the Muslims there whatsoever. And it got to the point where Muhammad now gave permission to the Muslims to now leave and emigrate because Medina was ready to absorb these Muslims and to protect them. So enough of the two tribes, the Aus and the Khazraj, the two tribes in Medina, 
leave the Jews to the side. They were not giving any support to the Muslims. But Oz and Khazraj, they controlled Medina. The Jews were the brains behind the economics. They were making money for themselves. But who ran Medina were these two tribes, Oz and Khazraj. And they combined together when Islam came for the first time ever, unified these two groups unify these two groups. The youngsters came in, they wanted to get rid of all of their history battles. You know, like we have in our families, we have all these issues that come from generations after generations. Eventually we get to a point we want to lead them to the side. So when this battle did occur in Medina, it gave the opportunity for the youngsters to find something new. And they said, this man, Muhammad, he can unify us. So the first time they came together, those Muslims that came together from the Aus and the Khazraj in Medina, were now known as the Ansar. So remember this word, the Ansar. They are called, the Ansar means the helpers. The people that gave help to Muhammad when everyone rejected them. And the Muslims in Makkah, who joined Muhammad in the early stages, carrying the dawah, but faced persecutions with him, when they left Makkah to go to the Ansar, the helpers, they are called the Muhajirun. Right? The people who then left their homes and they did a bigger sacrifice because they left everything behind. Just imagine your own situation. Hijrah in itself means that you are unable to practice your own religion, your ibadat, to the point that you can't even establish your salah without being persecuted. And if you get to the point where you feel that you cannot implement your religion in your own life, in your family life, then hijrah is expected from you for you to leave, to go. And for you to do that, you have to give up everything. Imagine that you're in a situation where tomorrow Britain says, we're done with you. You cannot implement your religion. If you want to stay in this country, we're happy to accommodate you, but you have to follow our way. Our rules, our norms, our values. You cannot teach your kids about Islam being the only one religion. You have to encompass everyone. The gays, the lesbians, whatever different types of people that exist. You have to allow your children to drink alcohol. You have to allow them to have the freedom to do this. You cannot just teach them about Islam. You have to teach them about other views, the religions of agnostics and atheism and etc, etc. To the point that you know that you lose grip. So you get to a point, you, are grow, you, you grew up in this country, you made your money, you got good jobs. And then you decide, okay, I can't deal with this, I'm going to leave. And then they say to you, you can leave, that's not a problem. But where the hell do you think you're going with all your money in HSBC and NatWest? You can't take that money with you. When you came here, or when you were born here, you made your riches from this country. We gave you the opportunity. We were the land of opportunity. So you can leave, but your money and your home and every other wealth that you own, your cars, etc., etc., stays in this country and you can go empty-handed. This is how they would do it. So hijrah it gets to a point where you leave because you have no choice. And that's a big sacrifice. They got to a point, no one wanted to leave Makkah. Muhammad made a dua and he looked at Makkah and he, before he left, he said to Makkah, if it was up to me, I would never leave you. Because Makkah was the city of his grandfather, Ibrahim who built the Kaaba there. And this was the house of Allah. And he did not want to leave this. He did not want to turn his back. 
So for him, it was very, very painful for him to leave, just like for you. This is your country. Just forget about the fact that it is governed by kufr. This is your land. You were born here and you have the right to practice your religion and you have the right to preach your religion to people. But for you to be kicked out of your land where your people are, this is an issue. So for Muhammad this became problematic, but they had no choice. So people started to leave. And the first people that left was a family. The husband was named Abu Salama. Abu Salama was one of the first cousins of Muhammad and Abu Salama had a wife by the name of Umm Salama, and obviously the son was named Salama. So Umm means the mother of Salama, and Abu Salama means the father of Salama. So Abu Salama was the first to seek the permission from Hamza Salam. He had no protection. He said to his wife, we got to get out of here. They are stepping up the campaign. If we have no protection, no family, we got to get out of here. So he saddled up, prepared the two camels. He put his wife and his son on one camel and then got ready to leave the other. Immediately, the family of Umm Salama turned up. Now, Umm Salama was from the Quraysh, right? She was from the local tribes of the Quraysh, whereas Abu Salama, her husband, was an outsider. So she married an outsider. So the moment they, the whole tribe of her family turned up and they saw what was happening, they said to Abu Salama, where do you think you're going? You think that you can leave this town and take one of, our, uh, one of our women folk with you. We don't care if she's your wife. She belongs to us. She's our property. So immediately they grabbed hold of her and pulled her off the, the camel. And they said, the son will come with us. Then from the family of Abu Salama, they intervened. They saw what happened. And they said, you can take your woman, but the boy belongs to us because he is the son of Abu Salama. And they started to pull at the boy. He got so fierce. He was only a young kid. He's when he's like seven, eight years old. And they pulled his shoulder out of joint. They hurt him. So immediately the mother started to cry and the whole family was split. So the, the one tribe who was of tribal Abu Salama, they took the young kid away from the mother. The mother got taken away with, from her tribe with the Quraysh. And Abu Salama had no choice but to mount the camel and leave without them and go to Medina. So the whole family was split. So Umm Salama, she was telling this story. She goes, for one whole year I suffered and I would spend the whole day outside of Makkah crying, making dua to Allah that to bring my family back together again. I could not even see my son. She was split up. This is how severe the situation was in Makkah. And then eventually what happened, Umm Salama went on to say, that one of the relatives, one of her relatives, he kept on seeing her cry all day and he started to have pity on her. And he went back to the tribe of the Quraysh. He said, listen, don't you think this is too much? One year has passed. She hasn't seen her son. He lives in the same town, right? She has, she's not allowed to see him. She's split away from her husband. What kind of life is this for her? So they all had pity and they agreed. So they allowed Umm Salama to take her son and she quickly saddled up after one year to leave to go to Medina. She packed up and she left. Now, it is not normal for a woman and a young child to travel. We talked about this before. You cannot travel over the desert and just go on your own without any protection because you will be kidnapped, you will be raped, you will be taken as a slave, your money will be taken, etc., etc. So as she went to travel... 
one of the Quraysh, a man by the name of Uthman bin Talha. Uthman bin Talha was a very honorable individual. He was coming back and he saw them traveling and he thought, this is unusual and I know Umm Salama. And he said to Umm Salama, where are you going with your son? She said, I am leaving Makkah because of the way they have treated us, the way they have broken up my family and I'm going to meet my husband in Medina. So they packed up and as they were going, Uthman bin Talha said to her, listen, it is not safe for you to go on your own. She said to him, Allah is with me. He said, so be it that Allah be with you, but you still need protection. Please allow me to escort you all the way to where your husband is. And I know where he is. So in Medina, the first, if you ever go to Hajj or Umrah, you will know that there's a little town very close to Medina. It's part of Medina. It's Qurquba. Okay, Muslim Quba is there, you'll know. So this is the first point of entry where the Muslims had met up. So he took her and Umm Salama described the, the nature of this man, Uthman bin Talha, that every time we rested, it was we had to stop for three nights on the way to sleep. We, he would stop, he would tell the camel to kneel, he would walk away, allow me to unmount, and we would sleep by the camel while he would go away and sleep by the tree. Because this is an honourable thing, because she's a married woman. Now, normally, the Arabs were not like this. They treat women like dirt. They can do whatever they want with them. Who's going to say anything? Especially when it came to Muslims, who were the worst of the worst and the bottom of the barrel. But she said, that look at the respect he gave me. When he would unmount, he would walk away so I can come off, and he would sleep by the tree away from us and then in the morning he would tell he would allow me to mount walk away and then he would lead me off eventually when we got close to medina he said to or to kuba he said to me your husband is waiting for you in this town and he let them go he they were close enough and then he returned back obviously usman bin talha was of such a character this is the person that when the conquest of makkah happened Muhammad spoke in great lengths about this individual and the, and, and the honour that this individual had. It was actually his family of the Quraysh that had the keys of the Kaaba. So you know that in the early stage we talked about that the families who controlled Makkah, they were controlled different parts of the running of the system. So you have Darul Nadwa, which is the parliamentary system. So you'd have one family controlling that. Then you'd have the Banu Hashim that used to look after the pilgrimage that used to come and feed them and so forth. That's why today you still have the same thing. And when you go to Makkah for Hajj, the government actually pays for your food. You know, they send you this uh, the, the food when you're staying in Minar. This custom still carries on. So there were families that had responsibility to provide you with food. There were families that were in charge of the army, families that were in charge of the economic system, etc. So his family had the keys to the Kaaba. So when Muhammad obviously took over Makkah, they had control over the Kaaba now. And yet, Uthman bin Talha became Muslim and he handed the key back to him and he said, this custodian of the Kaaba remains with you. And it remained even till today with his family today. Right? This is the honour that was bestowed on Uthman bin Talha. So these were the first families that went. Then over time, people started to go to the extent that there were quarters. If you go to Makkah, there were certain quarters that you would go to areas and Abu Jahl was walking there with Al-Abbas once and he said wow look at them the wind used to blow the doors open it used to be that empty it used to be quite airy and he would get angry Abu Jahl he would look at this he goes look these houses are emptied people have gone people are leaving 
and he will look at Al-Abbas and he says, this is all because of your nephew. Look at the fitna he has created. He has broken our families and he's destroyed everything. So these jahil people, they will look at, they will emotionally blackmail you and say, are you willing to break up the family? Are you willing to destroy all of this, our unison, because of the fact that, you know, he wants to implement this religion? Remember that Islam is stronger and it's thicker than blood. Islam is all about unification of something which is greater than just family. Because family break over land. Family break over money. Family break between husband and wife. But religion is what bounds you. Because the simple, the simple uh, middle road of Islam is that when a husband and a wife follow the rules of Islam and fulfill their obligation to each other by the rules of Islam, then nothing can break that. Because a husband will always look at his wife and say, I will implement the rights for you because Allah has ordered me. But I'm not going to stop doing that just because you annoyed me or because you've upset me. Because normally this is how the, the friction starts between families. I will not take your land, right? Because I feel it's the right. Allah has ordered me I cannot take the land of someone because that, that is their honour and their dignity and their right to protect that land. And Allah will account me for this. The moment you put that to the side, you put Islam to the side, then what is binding your family? What is binding husband and wife, father and son, right? Mother and, 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 and daughter. What is binding them? Nothing. You've seen it already break. You've seen in Muslim families how the youngsters are disrespecting their fathers and their mothers. But when you bring Islam into it, it keeps that bond. Because it has a unison law that sits underneath all of our relationships. So Abu Jahl is trying to make them think emotionally he's broken up. No, he hasn't. He's unifying something even stronger that will last forever. What was happening here is that people that were leaving Makkah were the weak in the sense that they had no protection, were the new converts, okay, so the very recent ones, and they were, and they were trying to escape. What was really interesting in the, in the process of these, this immigration is Allah was creating a filtration process. In that filtration process, did you know that there were few of the Muslims who apostatized as well? And we'll talk about this in the next story. Umar bin Khattab was only one of the many of the Muslims who didn't fear anyone. While the others were escaping secretly, packing up their stuff, taking all their gold and their assets and loading up and disappearing at night, Umar Khattab was the kind of individual. He had his goods, he had his backpack, he had his sword, everything. He went to the city, into the center of Makkah. He did his tawaf and said to everyone, because people saw him, he had all his bags and everything, he was doing his tawaf. He said, let everyone know that I am leaving to go to Medina. And if anyone dares, if anyone wants to lose their father, if anyone wants to lose their mother, anyone who wants to lose their children or lose their assets, then meet me outside of Makkah and try to stop me. So people knew that not to mess with this guy. So Umar bin Khattab, when he made his preparations, he made plans with two of the other Sahabi, Ayash bin Abu Rabia and Hisham bin Al-As. So he met up with two of these people and said, tomorrow we will meet up in the morning and if any one of us get detained, because the police force are out now detaining anyone that they know that are going to leave. If any one of us don't turn up on the next morning, then we agree that we just leave. So Umar Khattab said, even if they try to stop me and they detain me somehow, 
then you guys just leave without me. So Umar bin Khattab goes in the morning and he meets up with these people. Now, only one of them turns up, Ayash bin Abu Rabia. So he realizes that the other one has been kept behind. As a result of that, he says to the Ayash, we need to leave now. The other Muslim that they kept behind and Hisham bin Al-As, they detained him and they forced him through duress and he apostatized, he left Islam. Now, what was interesting about their understanding was that when they were forced to leave their religion, and they'll say, you have to reject Allah. You have to reject Muhammad And so out of getting away from the punishment or their hardship, they apostatized. They said, we leave. We, we reject Allah. We reject the Prophet Muhammad So in their mind now, they think they can never come back to Islam. They're done. That is the worst thing you can do. You, it's like giving your commitment to someone, having a contract and an agreement, and then going against it. So they thought they're written off. They're done. So... Umar bin Khattab now takes his journey and as he's on his way and he gets to Medina, Abu Jahl with this other man, Al-Harith, they turn up to come and get Ayash bin Abu Rabia back. They know they can't get Umar bin Khattab back. So what happens is they turn up and they see this Sahabi and they say to him, your mother has told us that she will never comb her hair ever again until you come back to her, meaning you become unhealthy and sick. And your mother has said she will never take shade from the sun. She will die out there until her son returns back. Umri Khattab says to the Sahabi, this is a trick. They are tricking you to bring you back. He says, but I can go back. Can I got money there? He says, you know I am wealthy. I will give you half of my wealth. Do not go back. They will torture you. They will make you leave Islam. They said, but what about my mother? Umar Khattab said, trust me, the moment the nits and the insects get into your mum's hair, she'll start to comb. And the moment the sun is too strong, she will seek shade. They don't have that kind of willpower. He says, no, let me go back and I will bring this money back as well. Umar Khattab said, okay, if you're going to do this, then take my camel, because my camel is the fastest. When you go with them, if you find that they trick you, then quickly escape and come back. So the Sahabi then decides to go. So he's with Abu Jahl and Al-Harith. Now Abu Jahl is smart. He knows that the camel that he's riding is very fast. So he says to Ayash, my camel is weak and it's uncomfortable. Do you mind if I ride yours? So the camel comes down. He gets off to try and get onto his one. And he quickly jumps on him, headlocks him, gives him a couple of kicks and beats and handcuffs him. Now Ayash realized now they've tricked me. So they take him all the way back to Makkah and that's it. And he now apostatized as well. So eventually what happened while they were in Medina, the ayah of the Quran that was revealed to Muhammad in regards to these people. So Allah says in the Quran, Say, O my servants who have harmed themselves, do not despair of God's mercy. God will forgive all sins. He is the all-forgiving, the all-merciful. Turn back to your Lord and submit to him before punishment reaches you. Then you shall not be helped. Follow the best that has been revealed to you from your Lord before punishment comes suddenly to you and you are caught unaware. And this was, this was from Surah Al-Zumar. How anyone who was put under a level of duress and then left their religion, that remember that one thing, 
that the doors of Tawbah are always opened until the day you die. So even if you apostatize, you leave religion, you reject it, you do the worst of things. Islam, Allah Ta'ala says, in this test, so long as you're still alive, Allah will leave the doors of Tawbah open for you. You can come back. And for those people who were forced, remember Allah knows what is in your heart, what you truly believe. Umri Khattab wrote this verse down and he sent this to the first Sahabi that got caught. When he got this, he's roaming around, he's free now because he's apostatized. But he doesn't understand. In his heart, he knows he believes in Allah, but he thinks, I can't come back to the religion. So he's reading this verse and he can't make sense of it. He's looking at sideways, front, backwards. And then he makes a dua to Allah, to the same God that he believes in. Ya Allah, make me understand this. And he read it again once more and he goes, oh my God, this verse is talking about me. This verse is about me and my friend. Allah is saying that the door is still open. So the moment he understood this, he went to his friend, the other Sahabi, and he said, Allah has forgiven us. What are we doing here? Let's go. They always believed. They just thought that they could never come back. So they quickly packed all their things and they left and they went back to Medina and they joined Muhammad Sallam. So you see that even there were some people, they apostatized and they came back to Islam. Some stayed apostatized, they never returned back. This thing was a filtration process. Allah SWT was filtering out the strong, filtering out the weak, finding out who can handle it, who can't handle it. Everything was a test. And really what it came down to was, were you willing to give up your wealth? The Sahabi Sahail, radiallahu anhu, this Sahabi, when he was about to leave, he got apprehended by the police force in Makkah. And they said to him, where do you think you're going? You came here as a beggar, and whilst here, you made your fortune. You have a nice property, you have nice few camels, you have loads of money now. You think you can just walk away from Makkah, taking all this money and asset? No. So Sahil said to them, if I tell you how much money I have and where it is, and I give it to you, would you let me go? And obviously they were greedy for money, because they are all about the dunya, not the akhirah. And they said, sure. So Sahil takes them, shows them where the money is, the gold, and he says, help yourself and take everything because I don't need it. My rizq came from Allah and my rizq will come back to Allah. So if that is my rizq, then it will come back to me. And if it is not my rizq, it was never meant for me. Right? I was never, I was never meant to have it. So you can have it. And so they took it and he gave up everything to join the rest of the Sahabi. He wanted to go to a place where he can practice with him because that was more important to him than having the wealth of this dunya. So you can now begin to see that so many different people were faced with different challenges trying to escape. Now the time came when the vast majority of the Muslims now slowly moved out and they left. This became a real problem for the Quraysh, a real big problem. Because allowing Muhammad Sallam and these Sahabi to now leave, what does that mean? It means that they will have free reign to do whatever they want outside. And eventually, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to come back and they're going to have a build, build a big army and they're going to attack us. They knew this. So the Quraysh decided to have a parliamentary meeting at the Darul Nadwa, which is, which is the parliamentary assembly. And they needed to make a decision. 
So they had a massive big meeting. In that meeting, they did not allow Abu Lahab, the uncle of the Prophet to turn up. Abu Lahab was against Muslim anyway. But the reason why they wanted for him to save face, because it would not look good on Abu Lahab if they had planned something against his own nephew from his own tribe, it would make him look good. So they said, you not turn up. So they turn up at this meeting, hundreds of them show up. With the introduction of one weird individual, some old sheikh that dressed up with a heavy cloak, he turns up, he's at the door. So Abu Jahl and a few others, they see this old man standing there. They said, who are you? Where have you come from? He said, I'm an old sheikh from Najat. Najat is deep in the desert, okay? So, you know, on the, on the, on the east side of Arabia. I'm from the deep of the desert. I heard that you've been having these problems. I have some experience. So let me come and I just thought I'll give you some of my advice. This was actually in the hadith says this was shaitan that came in the form of a man to ensure that they had the best possible plan. And his plan was only one plan. When they sat and they started to discuss, one of them said, why don't we grab hold of him now? Let's shackle him up and imprison him like we have some of the other poets. And when we mean the poets, that meant some people who attacked us on a, on a, from, a, uh, from a media campaign. Let's do that. There were two people that did this and we, we talked to them and we shackled them up. The old man said, this is not good enough because the moment you shackle him up and his people that have now left find out they will gather an army and they will, come and they will, and they will rescue him. No. And on top of that, even if he dies, we don't want them turning back right to taking revenge. So another one said, why don't we exile him? If we exile him and get him out, tie him up, put him on a camel, send him out to the desert, right? He won't be our problem anymore. And the old man then said, and so what? So that he will end up somewhere else and then build up his army and come back. No. And Abu Jahl is sitting there and he's listening to everyone. Abu Jahl has only has one thing in his mind and he's waiting for seeing if anybody will come up with this idea. And he looked at everyone. He said, why don't you just all speak up what's really in your heart, what you really want to do? You all want to kill him. So why don't we just kill him right now in our town, on our turf? And the old man, the shaitan said, that is the best plan. He said, we are all from different tribes. If we all take a blade each, we'll take a representative from each tribe, take a blade each, we approach him at night, we go to his house while he is sleeping, and we will all stab him. That way the Banu Hashem cannot wage war against all of the tribes. They know it's pointless, they're not going to win. So they have no choice but to accept blood money and we'll pay them the blood money for Muhammad. So that evening they had a plan that they will take a representative from each of the tribes and they will go to his house to kill him. Jibreel came to Muhammad Salam and said to Muhammad Salam, you must leave now. You must leave as soon as you can. Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha, she narrated the hadith. She said, the Prophet Muhammad came to our house in the midday. He never normally comes. It's scorching hot. Nobody comes. Middays when people sleep. So when I saw him coming, I knew this must be something urgent. He walks into the house and he sees Abu Bakr Siddiq. And he says to Abu Bakr Siddiq, empty the room. He says, it's only my daughters. You can trust them. He said, Allah has ordered me to leave. 
and Abu Bakr Siddiq became so happy because pre before Abu Bakr Siddiq wanted to leave. And Muhammad used to say to Abu Bakr Siddiq, wait, maybe Allah will give you a companion to go with you. And he always prayed that that companion would be Muhammad So he would hold back, but things became difficult for him. Now imagine this man, Abu Bakr Siddiq, in his prime, he had 40,000 dinar. By the time he became Muslim, he only had 5,000 left because he used all his money to free up slaves, right? He used to free them up. So when Muhammad came this day and he said, we are now ordered to leave, he became so happy. Hazrat Aisha reported that he cried so much out of happiness. And he said to Muhammad I prepared two camels. I've had these for ages. I bought them for you and me, and I've been feeding them, making them healthy, ready for our escape. He's had this for a long time. And look at Muhammad the character he was. He said to Abu Bakr Siddiq, I will only take this one if you allow me to buy it. I don't want no freebie. I will buy it off you. He goes, no, no, but I bought it for you. He says, no, I will only take it if you allow me to buy this. So they agreed. So they hired one man who was a tracker and a guide who was a non-Muslim. So they needed him because what they were about to do was not a normal journey. Okay, it was not a normal journey. Muhammad ordered Hazrat Ali that you will stay behind because you're from the Banu Hashim, you have full protection. You're the son of Abu Talib. You will stay behind and you will leave only once. A. And listen to this. He said, you will return all the assets that have been entrusted to me. You will return them back to the Quraysh. The irony of this is that as much as Muhammad was the Quraysh's enemy, the only person people ever trusted was Muhammad. So they used to give their gold and their money to him because they knew that he was the only person that would never turn against them. So he said, I have such and such person, such and such person, such and such person, their gold. Once we leave, return their gold back to them. Number two, I, tonight I need you to sleep in my bed. Put a cloak over yourself so they will not know because they'll be watching me. They will not know that I have gone. So Muhammad made the plan with Abu Bakr Sadiq that in the evening that they will leave. Okay? So the Quraysh sent out their police force. Abu Jahl was amongst them and they were watching very closely. Through the window they could see this person sleeping thinking that Muhammad Muhammad left. Now Makkah is here. And north of Makkah is Medina. Okay? But they went to Mount Thur, which is south of Makkah. So why did they not go north? Because they knew that when they escaped, that's the first place they would track them on. So they went south. They went exited the south of Makkah and they went to Mount Thur and stayed there for three days. Because they knew the next morning when they came and they were about to stab, this person under the bed think it's Muhammad. Hazrat Ali wakes up and they're like, what's Ali doing here? They say, where's Muhammad? They say, I don't know. I'm just sleeping in his bed. So they realize he's evaded us. He's escaped. So they got their trackers out trying to find out where he's disappeared to. First night, what happened was Abu Bakr Siddiq and Muhammad gave very clear instructions to the son of Abu Bakr Siddiq, to Abdullah. They said, Whilst we're in the mountain, we're going to be there for three days, yeah? Three days, three nights. Bring food to us. So 
Abu Bakr Siddiq said to Abdullah, you bring food to us every night. Then he said to his free slave, once he's delivered the food, destroy his tracks. So bring the cattle out and walk over his tracks. So they will not, because the trackers, that's what they look for, footprints, right? If there's two people traveling, they'll look for two footprints, yeah, a pair of two footprints. So they tracked all, they, they covered this all up. So they, so they stayed there. Eventually, they realized that they didn't travel up north. There was no tracks there. So they said, let's look south. So the army came out. The police force came out and they went to Mount Tur. And this is where the famous event happened. That Abu Bakr Sadiq, the, the kind of protection that used to keep Mount Salam, when they were walking to Mount Tur, he kept on going to the front of Mount Salam's camel, then to the back, then to the front. To the back. And Mount Salam said, what is wrong with you? Relax, take it easy. He goes, sometimes when I'm at the front, I think you're going to get attacked from the back. Then I come to the back and I think someone's going to attack you from the front. He said, calm yourself, I'm going to be fine. Such was the character of Abu Bakr Siddiq. He just wanted to protect Mansa Salam. When they got to the mountain, he said to Mansa Salam, there's a few caves here, let me enter first. Let me put my feet through because sometimes there's lions, there's wolves, there's snakes. And if anything will harm anyone, it will harm me first and not you. Eventually they found a cave and they went into that cave. And it got to a point that when the army came out, on the, literally on the third day, when the army came out, they were literally, they were, if you imagine the cave, they were underneath and they could see a crack and they could look, they could see the, the, the sandals of the soldiers. And Abu Bakr Siddiq was in an absolute panic. He said to Muhammad Salam, if they only look down, they will see us. And Muhammad said to Abu Bakr Siddiq, why are you concerned when there's you and there's me and the third companion is Allah? Now when I read this, it always reminds me of every difficult situation that we are in. Every difficult situation we are in, whether we are in health situation, whether a work situation, financial situation, the whole world can leave you. But if you for a minute Remember that Allah is the master. Allah that He is the master of the universe and the controller. This is what Allah loves. He says that my slave remembers that I am the master. And for that, I will give him assistance. I will remove his burden. We don't do that, do we? Every time something goes wrong, we call our mates, we call up everyone else, our mom, our dads, everyone. We, see, we never first put Allah there and say, Allah created this situation. Allah created this musibah for us. He will get us out of this. So Muhammad gave Abu Bakr a lesson. He said, why do you fear when the third person with us is Allah? And this calmed Abu Bakr Siddiq. This calmed him immediately. And they went. So eventually, when they went, they came out. They met up with the, the tracker that they had hired. And then they escaped. Because by that time, they'd, they went north, they couldn't find them. They went south, they couldn't find them. They were confused, they went back in. So a bounty was put on their head. They said to anyone, tradespeople going up and down, wherever you see them, whether it's north, south, east, west, put a bounty out. The news got out, 100 camels, dead or alive. 100 camels, dead or alive, you find these people. Suraka bin Malik was a known tracker. He's sitting there in the pub. He's seeing these people having conversations and said, did you hear that they're offering a hundred camels for, the, for Muhammad and Abu Bakr Siddiq, dead or alive? And then he heard some people saying, but we saw th two people, three people going this direction. He knew straight away that that must have been Muhammad and Abu Bakr Siddiq, right? And the tracker. 
And he said to them, no, 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 it's not them. I know who they are. They just travel. I already met them. And they're, they're just normal tradespeople. He knew himself. He wanted the money for himself. So once he'd got their attention somewhere else and they thought, right, we'll look somewhere else. Surak bin Malik then mounted up his camel, took his weapons and went in the direction towards Muhammad And you know the famous story. He chased them, he chased them. And as he got closer, Abu Bakr Siddiq can see this man coming. Oh my God, we've been tracked. They found us. And as he got closer, all of a sudden, the horse that he was riding sunk into the sand. Never happened. That occurrence is unusual. He sunk and he tried to get out. Then eventually what happened, he called for Muhammad Sallam. He knew that this is something miraculous is happening. And he called for Muhammad Sallam. He said, I'm sinking. Can you get me out? So he made a deal with Muhammad Sallam. He said, I will let you free, but I won't tell anyone where you are and where you've gone. Okay. But something unusual with Surah Ibn Malik, he knew the power that Muhammad holds. And he said to Muhammad Sallam, I will not tell anyone about your whereabouts. You get me out of this situation. As long as you write for me that I will be under your protection when you take over the world. Something about Surah Malik, he knew the power of Muhammad the Dawi, he knew this man would be a success. So he wrote this for him. Then when, as Muhammad was walking away, he turned around and he said to Surah Malik, he said, hey Suraka, before you go, how would you like the jewels of Kisra from the Persians? He looked at Muhammad and he goes, what are you talking about? He goes, are you talking Kisra, the king of Persia? You're talking about his? He says, how would you like his bangles, his gold and his wealth? He goes, because it will come to you. Can you believe it? After the conquest of Makkah, when Surah Kibbana became Muslim, under the Khilafat of Hazrat Umar bin al-Khattab, when they beat the Persians, Umar al-Khattab called Suraka bin Malik because they knew about this. And they said, come here. And they gave him the gold. This is after Muslim passed away. This is after when the third caliph came in, Umar bin Khattab. He said, come here. He said, here's the gold and the jewelries and the bangles of Kisra. Because the Prophet promised this. And the promise came true. So now Suraka bin Malik disappeared. He went back, never told them. Muhammad is now traveling with Abu Bakr Siddiq, gets close to Medina, and he meets Al-Zubair, one of the Sahabi. And Al-Zubair was traveling back from a caravan trade from Syria. He sees Muhammad and Muhammad tells him that we've left Makkah and we're making our way to Medina. So Al-Zubair takes out the most beautiful clothing that he's bought. He gives Muhammad and Abu Bakr Siddiq. He goes, when you arrive in Medina to your people, these are your new fresh clothes so that you can greet them. Thank you.